The destinations discussed in this week's episode are on the traditional lands of the Kalapuya, Northern Paiute, Cayuse, Umatilla, Tonkawa, and Comanche peoples. of Oregon's Museum of Natural and Cultural History in Eugene is packed to the rafters with stories. Each artifact, specimen, or work of art tells tales about how and where it was formed, as well as about the people who study it. Interested in the saga of the earliest Americans, who they were, and when they lived? Look no further than the ancient sandals from the deserts of Fort Rock, the world's oldest shoes and among the oldest lines of evidence of people in the Americas. Or perhaps you're interested in the history of an art form perfected along the coasts and rivers of the Northwest. Head into the Culture Gallery, where a case of baskets from around Oregon and Washington testify to the evolving skills and techniques of countless generations of weavers. And then there's the region's great biological epic, the story of salmon, which begins 40 million years ago in the Okanagan Highlands and reaches a dramatic climax in the form of the giant spike-toothed salmon on display in the museum. All of these examples play out over millennia, or even millions of years, but the process of understanding these stories is itself a story, and one that plays out on a much more human scale. Any object in any museum could tell one of these stories, but today we're going to track just one. It's the story of a fossilized arm, mounted on the wall just through the entry to the Museum of Natural and Cultural History's Explore Oregon Gallery. These bones, and others like them in museum collections across the U.S., are the vestiges of a vast drama of migration and predation, and the winding road that led to our understanding of them is a tale I feel exceptionally well qualified to tell, since it's one that's been a part of my life for over a decade, and in which I'm a central character. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and it's been a while since you've heard from me. I hadn't planned a podcast break, but between a busy end of the semester and a burst of travel made possible by COVID vaccination, more on this in future episodes, what was meant to be the April show kept on getting pushed back. It'll be ready to go later this summer, but in the meantime, I wanted to share another story with you. This one about the third thing that's been keeping me busy these last couple of months. It's much more focused than the stories I usually feature on voyages, with just a few widely scattered destinations and a handful of fossil bones. It's also a much more personal story than most of mine, because as you'll hear shortly, this one is all about me and my research. Except it isn't, not really. You've heard heroic tales of discovery in countless forms in pop culture. The archaeologist that opens an undisturbed tomb to reveal the treasures within. The physicist that solves a seemingly unsolvable puzzle about the universe. And of course that particular favorite of Hollywood, the lone genius who, at the 11th hour, reveals the one weakness of the aliens, or zombies, or robots, or monsters, menacing the world. But while these renegade loners in their eureka moments make for great drama, 
the real process of understanding the world around us plays out more like a Chekhov play than the latest superhero blockbuster. Full of slow reveals, occasional red herrings, and above all else, a complex cast of characters working alongside each other. Nothing that we do as scientists is a truly individual effort, and I want to share this story not to brag about my research, though I am really proud of the paper that resulted from it, but to draw back the curtain on the process involved, and how it could never work without widespread cooperation and collaboration. In this case, the cast of characters includes professors, collections managers, a legendary paleoecologist, curators, science writers, artists, the confederated tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, and most importantly of all, a longtime research partner and my closest friend from grad school. At the center of all of this is an animal, one of the most impressive carnivores ever to have lived, and a long-standing fossil enigma that has the sphinx-like quality of meeting every hard-won insight into its biology, with a new, often more puzzling riddle. We only know it from a few bits and pieces, the biggest and most complete of which you can see for yourself at my alma mater. J. Arnold Shotwell was a professor in the UO Department of Geology at a time when paleontology was in large part a descriptive science, one in which identifying new localities and naming new species was paramount. Shotwell was skilled at both, and he and his crews were responsible for finding and describing many of the beaver state's most important fossil sites. But he also saw that fossils could tell us so much more than simply what lived where, when. They could, for example, tell us about the environments in which organisms lived, how those environments changed through time and across landscapes, and how organisms interacted with them. In other words, he was ahead of his time in realizing that fossils can be tools for studying ecology. In a series of late Miocene sites in the basin of the Columbia River between Pendleton and the Dalles, he saw an ideal natural laboratory for the fledgling field of paleoecology, and he started collecting extensively in the area in the 1950s. The work that would result was pioneering, identifying three different ecosystems in the region, grasslands, woodlands, and pond banks. It was in this third environment that he found the cat bones now on display in Eugene. In one of his papers on the Columbia Basin fossils, he assigned them to a type of saber-toothed cat known as Machiridus, though without explaining why. Not to give away the ending of this story, but our work suggests that, whatever his reasoning, Shotwell got it right. Perhaps he would have done more with these fossils had he been given the chance, but at this point his story diverges from the cats and takes a turn for the tragic. Details are a bit fuzzy and vary depending on who you ask, but in the 70s it seems that a cost-cutting university administration asked Shotwell to downside his budding paleontology program by firing some of his staff. His admirably noble response was to fire himself, and he moved to the coast to spend the rest of his long life as an oyster farmer. The fossils he'd found remained in Eugene, locked away in a cabinet in a windowless room in the basement of the geology building. No one seems to have taken much notice of the cat arm for decades, until, in the early years of the next century, serendipity roped me into its story. I honestly can't remember what year it was that I first stumbled upon the arm bones now on display in the Museum of Natural and Cultural History. My best guess is 2008. The Vertebrate Paleontology Program at Oregon had new life, having recently hired my PhD advisors Sam Hopkins and Edward Davis, both interested in the ecology and evolution of the same groups of mammals studied decades earlier by Shotwell. 
Edward's job was, and is, at least in part, to manage the museum's Condon Fossil Collection, named for another legendary U of O paleontologist. And one of his first orders of business was to inventory the holdings, basically to make sure that the labeling on the cabinets was correct and that everything was where it was supposed to be. I was early in my PhD program at the time, and my salary that semester was being paid by the museum, meaning they got to help Edward with the inventory. As you might expect, there was a distinct sameness to the work. Open cabinet, tally specimens, make notes on anything that seems at all unusual or out of place, repeat hundreds of times. Every now and then, though, the fossils in the drawer were unexpected, impressive, or just plain beautiful enough to make us pause and take notice. When we opened a cabinet of Shotwell's Miocene material from Northeast Oregon, I had just such a moment that would send ripples throughout my life for years to come. Of course, you already know what we saw. The giant cat ulna packed up and labeled as such. My first thought was that the label had to be wrong, that there was no way a cat this old was this big. Perhaps I thought it was a rhino, which are commonly found at the same site, or a bear, the oldest species of which in North America dates to the same time. In rhinos, though, the ulna is fused to the radius, the other lower arm bone, to better support the animal's weight. And in bears, the shape of the elbow is totally different than in cats. Shotwell's ID, I quickly found, was correct. But in what will become a running theme of this episode, this just raised more questions. Foremost among these was, what kind of cat is this? It's a straightforward enough question, probably the first one that would occur to any of us upon being confronted by the fossil. But that simple beginning gave rise to a complex series of twists and turns that would not be resolved for over a decade. The question of which species Shotwell's arm belonged to is an important one, because the fossil, at about six million years in age, dates to a critical point in the evolution of cats in North America. At the time, true cats had only recently migrated to the continent from Asia. But which cats first made this trek? There are two major branches of the cat family, the felids. The first are the so-called conical-toothed cats, the group that includes all living species from tigers to margays, their extinct relatives, and your pet tabby. The second were the saber-toothed cats, one of the most familiar groups of fossil mammals thanks to the iconic Smilodon found in huge numbers at the tar pits of Rancho La Brea in LA, but one that's now entirely extinct. And to complicate things further, Felids weren't the only cat-like predators in North America at the time. For millions of years, a separate family of carnivores known as Nimravids had lived here, and it evolved into a diversity of saber-toothed predators. The last and largest of these was Barbara Felis, an impressively besabered animal the size of today's biggest cats. So which of these groups did the Eugene specimen belong to? Shotwell thought it was a true saber-toothed cat of the genus Machiridus, meaning dagger-tooth in Greek, Machiridus was named in the 19th century based on fossils from Europe, but it and its close relatives had also been found in Africa, Asia, and North America. Perhaps it was something entirely different, though, such as the enigmatic Nimravides, a true cat despite its confusing name, and a possible relative of conical-toothed cats. Maybe it was Barbarophilus, which an incredible skull from the Dalles, now in Seattle's Burke Museum, proves did live in the region at the time which would mean that this was not actually a cat at all. And of course, there was always the tantalizing possibility that it was something entirely new, a member of a group of cats never before recognized. And even if we knew which genus of cat it belonged to, several questions remained. 
The huge size of the bones hinted at the fact that the cat was bigger than any other from the time, and may have been one of the largest ever to have lived. The scale of the thing led those of us in the Hopkins lab to start calling it the Thundercat, but having a nickname for it, no matter how catchy, didn't get us any closer to figuring out what it actually was. The difficulty in identifying the animal arose from a few factors. A big one was that all of us had other irons in the fire. My PhD project was not on cats at all, but on the relationship between climate and body size in mammals. A story, incidentally, that is nicely told by other fossils on display in the Museum of Natural and Cultural History. While I traveled to museums from New York to Mexico City for my research, I kept an eye out for, and in many cases found, large felid bones that might belong to the same species, but the project remained solidly on the back burner. A more forbidding obstacle had to do with the way cat species are recognized. Usually, when a new species is named, it's differentiated from related species by features of the teeth and skull. The rest of the skeleton is usually ignored when describing a new cat. Often this is because nothing of the rest of the skeleton is ever found. But even in cases where skulls and arms have been found together, it's unclear how much this really tells us about which cat is which. Almost all living cats use their arms to capture prey, as opposed to dogs and many of their relatives which use their limbs for running and their jaws for prey. You can see this difference even in your pets if you watch them play. Cats bat at toys with their arms, dogs grab them in their mouths. This could mean that the evolution of felid arms could be strongly influenced by how they're being used, and that two cats that are only distantly related might have very similar looking humeri and ulni because they hunt in similar ways. Limbs, of course, also bear the weight of an animal, and another possibility is that big, bulky bones like the Eugene specimen might evolve independently in large species, which again could make it very difficult to tell even distantly related species apart. If either of these were true, then perhaps it would never be possible to identify the Thundercat, because the two bones now on display in the museum were all that Shotwell found of the animal, and with the exception of a few scrappy teeth in the collections of the Idaho Museum of Natural History, Every fossil I'd found in other collections was likewise an arm bone. This is not actually that unusual for the cat fossil record, because cat arms are often so bulky for grappling with prey, the big dense bones that form them are more likely to get fossilized than smaller or lighter bones. Still, it presented a problem that clearly needed to be overcome. Fortunately, in the early years of the 2010s, three things happened in rapid succession that would make it possible to do so. major evolutionary biology conference was hosted just up the road from me in Portland, and I couldn't miss out on the opportunity to attend. Neither could Jonathan Khaled, who had been a master's student at Oregon with me, with whom I'd shared an office for two years, and who was then a PhD student at the University of Washington. In his years in Eugene, we'd become close friends, and while catching up in Portland, the topic of the Thundercat naturally came up. My PhD work was drawing to a close. I'd finish up officially the following year and as a postdoc, I'd have more time to devote to the thorny problem of identifying the giant felid. Jonathan mostly works on rodents, but he's also an expert in morphometrics, more on what this means shortly, and it made all the sense in the world for him to work on the cat with me. We left the meeting in Portland as collaborators on the project. The third major domino fell in 2012, when a group out of England published a paper on cat humori. Their findings might not sound particularly thrilling to most people, 
but for Jonathan and I, the paper was a bombshell. Unsurprisingly, they found that for the most part, the humerus is a product of hunting behavior and size, meaning that it might not be very useful for identifying species. There was, however, one big exception. The anatomy of the far end of the humerus, where it forms the upper part of the elbow, did seem to reflect a cat's relationship to other species. If this were true, and if we could find enough specimens for comparison, then maybe we could finally solve the enigma of the Thundercat's identity. The paper had given us the foundation we needed to build on, and we needed to find as many Thundercat fossils as possible and build up a large cross-section of modern and extinct cat humeri for comparison. Over the next few years, Jonathan and I both spent time visiting museums and taking photos and measurements of every cat humerus we could get our hands on, resulting in a data set that constituted a who's who of big cats and cat-like predators through time. Smilodon, Machiridus, Nimravides, Barbarophilus, the American lion, possibly the largest cat ever, leopards, lions, tigers, jaguars, cheetahs, cougars, and panthers. The problem is that big cats, and especially fossil cats, are rare meaning that we had to visit a whole bunch of museums to build up our data set. From Vancouver to LA, Pullman to Paris, whenever we visited a collection for any reason, we'd always be sure to spare some time for the cats. Finally, as the 2010s drew to a close, we were getting to the point where we could begin our analysis. By this point, both Jonathan and I were tenure-track faculty with research labs of our own. He at Ohio State, me at Gonzaga. All we needed going into 2020 was enough downtime to actually move forward. Of course, you all know what happened next. 2020 made it very easy for us to keep our resolution of finding the time to work on our paper. The Thundercat project was one of the few things in the world that actually benefited from COVID-19. Thanks to being stuck at home and the cancellation of most student research, Jonathan and I suddenly found ourselves with enough bandwidth to run our analysis. What it entailed was going through every photo we'd taken of cat humeri and marking the same points, such as the furthest projection of the end of the humerus, or the point that projects furthest to the side, on each one. The end result is basically a ball-and-stick model of the bone. Connect all the dots and you'd more or less have an outline of the far end of the humerus. We use these models to compare the shape of the humerus between species by graphing them and looking for groups of points. If individuals of the same species tended to plot together, it would mean that we could use humerus shape to distinguish species. If not, we couldn't. The real moment of truth for the study came not with uncovering a fossil in the field or discovering an unidentified specimen in a museum drawer, but with clicking enter on a keyboard. The result was surprisingly compelling. I'd expected that it would show that big cats tend to have similar humeri regardless of what group of felids they belong to. Instead, with a few notable exceptions, specimens of the same species tended to group together. Most importantly, the Eugene and Idaho specimens plotted alongside five other fossils from the University of California Museum of Paleontology, the Texas Memorial Museum, and a second Oregon specimen that my students and I had found in 2017 at the same site Shotwell found the original arm. The implication was clear. A combination of huge size and an unusually narrow structure marking the point where the humerus and ulna interlock were unique to the Thundercat. The only thing anywhere near it on our charts were species of Machiridus, with which the teeth of the Idaho specimen also suggested a relationship. Shotwell had been right back in the 50s when he identified the bones as being from this early saber tooth. 
He just hadn't realized he had an entirely new, gigantic species on his hands. In the long run, Jonathan and I like to think we've given the paleontology world a useful tool for identifying new cat species, but in the short term, we had a pressing issue at hand. What should we call the new species? In the 18th century, the great Swedish biologist Carl von Linné established the system for naming new species that we still use today. In this system, every species belongs to a larger genus. Every genus belongs to a family, every family to an order, and so on, with different groups nesting inside one another like Russian matryoshka dolls. Each species is identified by a two-word phrase, with the genus name first, then the species, the most famous example being the dinosaur Tyrannosaurus rex. Check out last season's episode on dinosaur names for more on taxonomy and why it matters. In our case, we knew the genus was Machiridus, but what should we call the species? In von Linné's day, the scholarly language of Europe was Latin, though it was also a good bet that your average academic had training in ancient Greek. Because of this, most species named over the last quarter of a millennium have names in one of these two classical languages. Remember, for example, that Machiridus is Greek for daggertooth. But of course, not all organisms lived in Europe, and increasingly new species have been named in languages native to the landscape in which they were found. This is especially important in places like North America, where European languages are a recent arrival, and where indigenous languages developed over the course of millennia. In this case, the cat bones that Shotwell uncovered in the 50s and that my students and I found in 2017 came from the traditional lands of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, which runs the outstanding Tamastlicht Cultural Institute outside of Pendleton. We reached out to the Institute to see if the tribes would be interested in collaborating with us on the cat's name, and the response was fast and enthusiastic. An anthropologist working for the tribe researched the irrelevant words in Old Cayuse, one of the languages of the Confederated Tribes that is now extinct, and found two words that accurately described the animal. Lahais, meaning ancient, and Hupup, meaning wild cat. Put these together with the genus Machiridus, and you get Machiridus Lahais Hupup or the ancient wild cat with dagger teeth in a mix of Old Cayuse and Greek. So finally, in collaboration with the Confederated Tribes, the mysterious giant cat had a name, one which we published in May of this year in the Journal of Mammalian Evolution. Aside from a flurry of media interviews that have kept me fairly busy over the last couple of months, the part Jonathan and I played in this cat story has come to, if not an end, at least the close of a chapter. Because while the story of this one individual study ends here, the story of Machiridus Lahais Hupup is still unfolding. <music> Giving Machiridus Lahais Hupup its name has been immensely rewarding for me, allowing me to tie a bow on over a decade of research. But solving this one mystery has brought others to light. There's one in particular I find fascinating. Using its humeri and teeth as a starting point, Jonathan and I estimated how large Machiridus lahaius hupup might have gotten. We calculated an average weight of over 600 pounds, though with only seven known specimens in the world, our margin of error is fairly large. Still, this would make it among the largest cats ever. Curiously, at the same time it roamed North America, closely related and similarly enormous species stalked prey in Asia, Europe, and Africa. And a few million years later, when the North American Smilodon crossed Panama into South America, it quickly evolved into a giant as well. 
Why has evolution shaped saber-toothed into titans on every continent they populated? Or perhaps a single huge ancestor dispersed to Africa, Eurasia, and the Americas, giving rise to equally huge daughter species on each continent? If so, which species was this, and what factors allowed it to disperse so widely? I wish I had an answer to these questions, but before we can tackle them, we need a better sense of how Machairidis lahai supup and other early saber-tooths are related to each other. Unfortunately, this is a target that many have attempted to hit, but that remains a field of study as contentious as it is important. And when I say important, I don't just mean to the relatively small community of us who study fossil cats. Top predators play a huge role in maintaining the structure and diversity of modern ecosystems. Big cats play this role in communities from Tierra del Fuego to the Cape of Good Hope, and they almost certainly did so in the past as well. The fossil record can allow us to zoom out and see how cat evolution has played out on the grandest of scales, as new species evolve or go extinct, as new groups migrate from continent to continent, and as cats living in the same environments interact with their relatives, their competitors, and their prey. How, for example, was the course of evolution for the native North American nimravid Barbarophilus altered by the arrival of true cats? Were there ripple effects for other species alive at the time? And might this tell us something more general about how the arrival of new species impacts ecology and evolution that might be valuable when dealing with modern invasive species? Fascinating as I find these questions, I don't have answers to them either, but I can take a stab at which animals Machairidis lahai supup might have very directly interacted with. The most common question I've gotten about the cat since its description was published is what it might have eaten. The short answer, of course, is meat. Unlike some other groups of carnivores, such as dogs or bears, cats are exclusively predatory. But just how overly simplistic this answer is becomes clear when you see the glorious diversity of prey animals that roamed Miocene North America. Two museums housing material from the same sites where Machairidis lahai supup was found are especially good for getting a sense of this walking smorgasbord. One is far afield from Eugene, in Austin, where the Texas Memorial Museum, more on this gem later this summer, displays mammal fossils from Coffee Ranch in the Lone Star State's Panhandle. Or if you find artistic reconstructions of ancient landscapes more compelling, head to John Day Fossil Beds National Monument in Central Oregon, where the phenomenal Thomas Condon Paleontology Center displays not only mammal fossils from the Rattlesnake Formation, but a gorgeous mural depicting life at the time, including Machairidis itself. In both exhibits and the mural, you'll see a wide variety of mammals, from tiny rodents to mid-sized horses to enormous mastodons. Bigger cats today tend to hunt bigger prey, and assuming this relationship held true in the past, we can estimate a cat's preferred prey size based on its body size. Using a series of equations based on different estimates of weight, we got a wide range of possible prey sizes. The smallest of these was just over 800 pounds, roughly the size of the largest living zebras. Horses, then, are at the small end of animals this cat is likely to have targeted, with camels, rhinos, and ground sloths, all of which have been found at the same sites as Machairidis lahai supup, being likelier prey. This diet of huge animals remains an untested hypothesis, one of the many new questions our work has raised about this gargantuan cat. It's a hypothesis that's testable, though, perhaps by looking at what animals are found in association with Machairidis lahai supup, by looking at wear patterns on its teeth, or by examining stable isotopes in its teeth, assuming we're ever fortunate to find more than a handful of them. It would be the kind of study that requires a large number of specimens, detailed information on where they were found and how old they are, and collaboration between scientists in different fields, 
ideally in a space where all of these elements could come together and in which new findings could be shared with the public. Put more succinctly, they require a museum. visit those arm bones on the wall in Eugene, take a moment to look around you at the rocks, fossils, and biological specimens that surround you, as well as the works of art and ancient artifacts in the culture gallery across the hall. I've picked the cat to focus on because of my direct experience with it, but every single specimen in the museum tells its own story, each well worth listening to. This one in particular began in the high deserts of eastern Oregon, but it was in a museum that Shotwell first described and sketched the bones, and where I stumbled upon them years later. And without collections of fossils and modern cats amassed by museums on both sides of the Atlantic, Jonathan never would have gathered enough grist to grind in his analytical mill. Far from being dusty storehouses where artifacts wind up once their stories have played out, museums are both settings for and active participants in these sagas. There are many ways in which the story of Makairidis Lahaiisupu might go in the coming years, and I can't wait for the next plot twist. And as this narrative develops, so too will those of objects throughout the museum, from an ancient three-toed horse to one of the oldest known samples of preserved human dung. If you're in or near Eugene, by all means head down to the UO campus and experience these artifacts and their unfolding histories. But every museum in the world, even the smallest, is full of stories, and I encourage you to go out and learn them as the world continues to reopen. After a few months' hiatus, Voyages will be back by your side to help tell at least a few of these tales. In fact, at least for the time being, you'll be hearing new episodes more frequently, with new shows being released the first and third Thursday of each month through February. As always, you can find out more details about the destinations discussed on the show at our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com and follow us on Facebook. If you like the show, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it on the podcatcher of your choice. And most importantly, please share it with your friends. My hope is that Voyage's second season will feature a mix of episodes on places I've visited and interviews with authorities on other parts of the world. So if you have an idea for a topic, please drop me a line at voyagepod at gmail.com to suggest episode topics. Thanks for joining me on this voyage into the Sabretooth saga, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come.